Our passage this morning is from Romans chapter 5, verse 18 to chapter 6, verse 5. I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. The passage is also printed on page 9 of your worship guide. Please stand for the reading of God's word. As you stand, I would remind you that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Romans 5, 18, 6 to 6, 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Chrissy. I want to thank you also, uh, church family, for your prayers and uh, your provision that have enabled me and enable me each week to spend time studying the Word of God. It's been a rich blessing for me to study through the book of Romans, and I think uh, these last few weeks, particularly chapter 5, chapter 6, um, have brought rich blessing into my own life, a, gr- a greater understanding of the gospel, of our union with Christ. I, I don't know that these have been the best sermons I've preached. I wouldn't say that, but I think they're some of the most important sermons that I have preached. And I would encourage us, as we look to the Word of God once again this morning, to look to our Savior and His Spirit for His blessing upon the preaching of the Word. So we come to the end of chapter 5 into the beginning of chapter 6 and we're looking at our union with Christ. Some would say our identity in Christ. The meaning and the making of identity are huge in our world today. And really they always have been. That question, who am I? You know, who am I? Who are we? It's not just a question that philosophers ask and argue about. It's one that uh, every teenager, uh, particularly through those middle school years, may wrestle with. And then it's one often that comes back later in life for many, the midlife crisis we may talk about. But the way that we ask and answer that question, who am I, is often largely influenced by our family, by our friends, by the culture that we live in. Some people live by an assigned identity. I am what my family says I am. Or maybe I'm defined by what other people think or say about me. Others live by an accomplishment identity. I am what I achieve, what I do. I'm defined by my works, by my merit. And so we're always asking, do I measure up? 
And many in our world today live by what would, some would say is an assertive identity. I am whatever I say I am. No one else can define me. I define my own reality, even today, my own gender. And no one has the right to deny me the, the identity that I desire. As we think about these ways of defining our identity, they all distort the truth. They all fall short of the truth of God's word, and they actually promote lies. The truth of God's word tells us something very different, and for the believer, it reveals that our truest identity is found in being united with Christ. We are joined to the life of Jesus himself, the perfect life of Christ. And our new identity is in Christ. We are a new creation. So for the believer, union with Christ answers that question. Who am I? I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. In Romans chapter 5, we saw that Paul was comparing and contrasting our union with Adam versus our union with Christ. And it can't be both. You cannot be both united with Adam and united with Christ at the same time. It's either one or the other. And now in chapter 6, Paul moves forward and he is focusing exclusively on the believer's union with Christ. Now you may know Paul never actually uses the word Christian. His most common descriptor for those that we would call Christians or believers, those who love and follow Jesus, is that they are in Christ. That phrase, or one like it, is used almost 150 times in the New Testament. It's quite significant, quite important. And when Paul uses that phrase, he's talking about our union with Christ. We are united with Christ. Identity in Christ is simply a way of saying union with Christ. I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. And so for the Christian, the scriptures tell us, Christ is your life. Christ lives in you. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now one way to check if you are living according to your union with Christ is to pay attention to your thoughts. What are you saying to yourself? What are you believing? And maybe pay particular close attention for that voice of insecurity or that voice of pride. The voice of insecurity will say things like, well, look at all that that other person has accomplished. I'm so behind. I'm so worthless. Or that person has so many friends, so many followers. I'm insignificant. That mom has more kids and less mess in her home. I'm a failure. That voice of insecurity. Or maybe it's the voice of pride. Look how far I've come. Look at all my gifts and all my skills. I'm the best. I'm important. Or look how many people look to me and trust me. I'm the expert. I serve God faithfully. I am worthy. But neither insecurity nor pride line up with our new life in Christ. Neither flow from our union with Christ. In chapters 3 through 5 of Romans, we have been learning about justification. How are guilty sinners made right with God? How do we come to have our sins forgiven? How are we made acceptable to God? And we have seen very clearly 
that it is only through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is only through his perfect life and his sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. And so we've been asking as we reflect on that, when you trust in Christ, how much sin is in your account? None. How much righteousness is in your account? Not only the perfect, full, complete amount, the perfect righteousness of Christ, but it is overabundant. This is what we have in Christ. And this is grace. God's unmerited favor. God is now for you. But this grace that we receive, this salvation, this justification, it's not only spiritually true, in principle, in the courtroom of God, in the sight of the holy God. Yes, we are holy. But it, it, it is also true more and more in practice, in our physical lives here on earth. God is transforming our very lives. And so in Romans 6, Paul's taking that step forward. Who's, he's moving on now from how we're justified, how we're made right with God, to how we are sanctified. How do we become more like Christ? Our Westminster Shorter Catechism asks that question. What is sanctification? And it begins by saying it is a work of God's free grace. Now, if you remember, justification is an act of God's free grace. And there's a difference there. Justification is a once-for-all-time act. It's done. It's completed. Sanctification is an ongoing work of the Spirit in your life. It is a work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. So now Paul is going to teach us how the reign of grace in our lives leads to a new way of living, a life that brings glory to God, a life that flows out of or from our union with Christ. And so Paul begins chapter 6 by showing us that every child of God is united with Christ by the Holy Spirit in such a way that grace abounds in a newness of life that is dead to sin. Beloved, if you are a child of God, you are united to Christ by the Holy Spirit in such a way that grace abounds in your life and a newness of life that is dead to sin. Today we want to consider three things about this union with Christ. First, this union with Christ prevents the abuse of God's grace. This union with Christ is a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, union with Christ walks in a newness of life that is dead to sin. So first, union with Christ prevents the abuse of God's grace. At the end of chapter 5, Paul has said, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So for those who are in Christ, God's grace always abounds over or swallows up their sin. So a believer sins, as we do every day, and instead of incurring God's just wrath and his punishment, you receive God's grace every time. So Paul anticipates that this could be misunderstood or abused, the error that some might latch onto. And so he begins chapter 6, verse 1, by asking this question, well, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And we hear that answer again. By no means. We've seen that phrase a few times 
throughout the book of Romans. By no means. That means God forbid. No way. This is impossible. Now why? Why is this impossible? Because when you have been united with Christ, you have died to sin. That's why Paul then asks, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And this dying to sin is a past act. It's something that has already happened. We died with Christ. This was a once for all death that has for all time broken the power and the reign of sin in us. So beloved, for those who are in Christ, God has taken you out of the reign of sin and death and he has brought you into the reign of grace. That's why every Sunday when we gather, you hear us say, believer in Jesus Christ, you are free, not just from the guilt of sin. Yes, you are forgiven. We rejoice in that. But you are free not only from that, but also from the power of sin and death. And you say, thanks be to God. Paul's whole argument in Romans chapter 6 is that our union with Christ means the penalty of sin has been paid and our bondage to sin has been broken. Amen? So now, beloved, when you are in Christ, when you are united with Christ, you have the power to say no to sin and to walk in a newness of life that pleases God. Now, Paul's not saying that you will never sin. But he is saying that God's abundant grace through his son poured out on you that has made you alive in Christ and dead to sin does not and cannot cause you to respond by saying, well, then it doesn't matter if I sin. I'll I'll just sin more so I can get more of God's grace. That is unthinkable for those who are in Christ. It's unthinkable for those who have died to sin and are now alive in Christ. God's grace does the exact opposite. God's abundant grace gives you both the desire and the power to say no to sin, to turn from sin and walk in newness of life, to say yes to God, a life of holiness. Now last week I mentioned John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, his autobiography, the story of his salvation, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. It's a a great title taken right from Romans. And John Bunyan was a champion of the grace of God. He had experienced it. He knew it. And he wanted to tell everybody about it. And he did. And so people began to rebuke him a little bit. And they would say, John... You can't keep telling people about the grace of God. You can't keep telling people how much God loves them. If you keep telling them how much God loves them, they're going to do whatever they want. They're just going to continue in sin that grace may abound. And John said, oh no, 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 no. Not God's people. Not God's people. You tell God's people how much God loves them and they will do whatever he wants. Why? Because grace reigns in your life. You're united with Christ. Beloved, union with Christ prevents the abuse of God's grace. Second, 
union with Christ comes from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Or we might say we are supernaturally united to Christ by the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul asks another question. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Now, I want to be clear here. Although you hear that word baptism several times in these verses, Paul is not talking about water baptism here. The sacrament of baptism is not what he has in mind. Now, water baptism does indeed signify our union with Christ. That is one of the blessings of this gift from God. So there, there is a connection. There is something to be learned. But this passage is not about water baptism. It's not about what it accomplishes or how we do it. Here Paul is dealing with the question of how. How did we die to sin? How did we go from being in Adam to in Christ? And specifically, how are we united with Christ? And the answer is not by water baptism. No water has the power to do that. This supernatural change in your life. You went from being dead in Adam to being alive in Christ. That requires a resurrection power. Something far more potent than water. Something that only God can do. Paul here is talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is what we read about throughout the scriptures. John the Baptist himself said in John chapter 1, I baptize you with water, but there comes one after me greater than I, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about this same Holy Spirit baptism in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He writes, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Jesus talks about this in his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he told him, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And even there, Jesus is not talking about water baptism when he mentions water. He's talking about the covenant promise that was mentioned in Ezekiel 36 where God's word says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. This baptism of the Holy Spirit is how the scriptures talk about our union with Christ. This is how God does this work in our lives. We must be born again. We must be made new. We must be regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now why? Why is this necessary? Why can't we enter the kingdom of God some other way? Because the holy God is the king of his kingdom. And the scriptures say, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And friend, you cannot meet that standard of perfection. No ordinary human can do that. Because you are all born in Adam with the guilt of original sin. Remember, when Adam sinned, you sinned. And so you are born guilty under God's just condemnation. And you prove your guilt by your own sinful desires and actions. 
and there is nothing that you can do to remove this guilt from your life, to overcome that guilt, that power, that slavery to sin. There's nothing you can do within yourself, no kind of baptism that can do that in you through water. You don't have the power or the ability to do that because you are born dead in sin. And Paul has made it clear that salvation, God's gift of his forgiveness of our sins and eternal life, entrance into his kingdom, is not achieved by us. Instead, it is received as a gift from God. Your salvation is not achieved, it is received. So the only way that you can enter into the kingdom of God, the only way that you can be united with Christ, is if God himself joins you to his son. God Almighty has to initiate it. He has to do it, and he does initiate it. He does it through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So God puts his spirit on you, in you, and he causes you to be born again. He removes you from your union with Adam, and he unites you to Christ. And the way that you know God has done this, the way that you know you are united with Christ, is not if you have been baptized with water, but it's if you believe God. If you say, yes, I am a sinner, and Jesus is the only Savior, and I need his blood shed on the cross to cleanse me from my sin and I need his righteous life to count for mine. I trust in Jesus and now all of my allegiance belongs to him. He is my Lord and my God, my Savior and my King and I love him. Amen. Amen. This is what Paul is talking about in verses three and four. This is how you are united with Christ. It's through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, in verse 3, Paul also says this. He says that all of us, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. So all who are baptized into Christ Jesus are united with Christ. They belong to Christ. They are in Christ. They're no longer in Adam. They have eternal life. They all will be with Jesus forever. That is not true of everyone who has been baptized by water. Water baptism does not save. It does not save you. And not all who are baptized by water are truly saved. And on the other side, not everyone who is in Christ, who's united with Christ, has the opportunity to receive water baptism. The obvious example was the thief on the cross. He was never baptized with water, but he was united with Christ. And so Jesus would say, today you will be with me in paradise. Beloved, Paul is saying the way you're brought into union with Christ is through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is the supernatural work of God upon your life. He makes you alive when you are dead, and then he puts his very living spirit within you. And this is true of all believers, from the youngest to the oldest. From every, for every child of God. This happens at conversion, at the moment of salvation. It's not something that happens after you become a believer. It's not a second blessing. It's not only for those who are super saints. This is the way that all believers are united with Christ today. The supernatural, resurrecting power 
of the Almighty God comes upon you and he pours out his Holy Spirit on you to identify you and unite you with all that Jesus has done. And so third, union with Christ results in a newness of life. Look at verse four. Paul continues, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So in union with Christ, you now have resurrection power within you. The spirit of the living God living in you to empower you to walk in newness of life. We hear this in that same covenant promise in Ezekiel 36. It continues and the word of God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. This is something God's doing in your life. He is causing you, enabling you to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. Beloved, this is such good news for us. You do not have to walk in this new life in your own strength. Indeed, you cannot. You don't have to do this on your own. This newness of life is not dependent on your ability to change or to make better decisions or to follow through on commitments. This walking in newness of life flows from your union with Christ. It is a walk by faith. It is to know your need and your weakness and to depend upon God's provision and his power and his sufficient grace. It's to live according to what God says is true of you. To realize what he has done in you. You are united to Christ. That's a fact. It's a reality. And the spirit of the living God lives in you to empower you day by day, moment by moment, to walk in this newness of life. Perhaps it might help to think of it this way. We have many small children in our congregation. Each one is a gift from the Lord. There are many times, I'm sure, where a father will give a child one of his own shirts, which is much too big for the child in that moment, right? But the shirt is given to the child. And so this child, wearing his father's shirt that's been given to him, is already fully clothed. But he's still just a small child. He has to grow into that new covering until it fits. Beloved, you are already clothed in Christ and his righteousness. It is yours. And it does not change. Remember last week from Bunyan? Your righteousness is in heaven. You can't make it worse. You can't make it better. It's perfect. It's solid. It's unchanging. So the shirt does not change in size. It doesn't become more ours. Life in Christ is one of growing into our new reality. Just like that child will grow over time. We will grow into this newness of life that we already have. You have been made new. Paul wants you to walk in light of this truth. To, to enjoy your new reality. That's why he says in Galatians chapter two, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That wasn't just for Paul. That's true of you. Every one of you who trusts in Christ, 
Christ lives in you. And the life you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Beloved, our union with Christ means that Christ is in you and you are in Christ. You have all of Christ for all of life. This is the new defining truth of who you are. So your life, your story, has been enfolded, engulfed by another story, another's life. So who are you? How do you answer that question, who am I? What is your identity? Well, you know, we could say you do have an assigned identity. But it doesn't come from your family. It doesn't come from your friends or what any other created person may ever say about you. Instead, your identity is assigned by the one who made you. The one who has the right, the authority to say who you are. And what does God say of all his children without exception? You are my child whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. God is well pleased with you, beloved, because you are united with his perfect, blessed son, Jesus Christ. It may be that one of the struggles of your life has been that those who know and love and care for you, you feel like they've never been pleased with you. It may be that you feel like no one is pleased with you. But beloved God is. The one who matters most. The one who only truly matters. He is well pleased with you. And you also, we could also say you have in Christ an accomplishment identity. But this identity is based not on your accomplishments, on what you do, but on the accomplishments of another, on the life, on the merits of Jesus Christ. And so this means that your union with Christ As wonderful as this is, it's a reality in your life. It's not based on your understanding of it. It's not based on your experience of it. And it's not the strength of your faith or the level of your obedience or the correctness of your doctrine that saves you or that unites you to Christ. It's the perfect Christ who saves. It is his work and it's his perfect righteousness that is freely given to you, credited to you, You're united to Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit so that what Christ has done, you have done. When he died, you died. When he was raised, you were raised. And so your new identity in Christ is also asserted. But again, not by you. Not by what you say is true about yourself. But by the one, the only one who can say, I am who I am. By the one, the only one, who is able to create life. By the one who alone can make you alive when you were dead. By the only one who can put his spirit in you and unite you to his son. God says who you are. And you believe his word is true and his word brings and gives you life. And so may the word of God build you up and holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation today, beloved. You are united with Christ forever. Thanks be to God. Amen.